Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb. This podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today's interview is with Matthew Sorens and Eric Costanzo. Uh, they have together, along with Daniel Yang, written Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. Matthew Sorens is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief and the National Coordinator of the Evangelical Immigration Table. Eric Costanzo is a pastor and teacher from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who writes about biblical, cultural, and historical topics, along with global issues affecting the church. I'm going to talk today with Matt and Eric about how Christian nationalists in America view immigration. Also, we're going to ask them to coach us as to how to respond to some of the misinformation, the slander, and the distortion of the story of immigrants coming to America. So if you're interested in immigration in America, or you just want to know how to better respond when someone in your family or circle of friends says something that seems un-Jesus-like around immigration, this interview is definitely for you. So without further ado, here is Matt Sorens and Eric Costanza. So Matt, Eric, uh, would you guys just talk a little bit about how you're perceiving immigration, the issue of immigration, being engaged by some of these organizations that promote and propagate American Christian nationalism? I mean, I would say I've been working in around issues of immigration for a long time, and this has always been true to some extent, but I've seen it in new ways in the last few years, where immigrants are sort of presented as an invasion, a, you know, a threat to the United States. Honestly, that sort of language is beyond being sort of offensive to to our immigrant friends and often immigrant brothers and sisters. It's a little bit absurd if, like, I, you know, I spend a lot of time at the border. And, you know, World Relief also does work in Ukraine. I understand what an invasion is. It's when a foreign military comes in with the intent to take over your country. It's an awful thing. You know, it's really different than Guatemalan or Honduran asylum seekers showing up with their hands out saying, please, would you help us? Whether or not those people should be allowed to come to the United States or stay in the United States, you can discuss that. But to pretend that they're, you know, some sort of a menace, I think is, um, it, it just doesn't at all, you know, it doesn't equate at all when you actually see what's happening at the border. And then again, that dynamic, and we wrote about this in, in our book, Inalienable, a little bit, like, instead of an invasion, some of these people could actually be like the revival that God is sending to the United States. Like, there are people who, in many cases, I mean, even just like you look at the countries that immigrants tend to come from, they're more Christian than the United States at this point by a lot of measures. I mean, they're coming from from Latin America, from Africa, certain parts of Asia. Even the Ukrainians are coming, I mean, are disproportionately evangelical Christians compared to the population of Ukraine overall and some very vibrant Christians who are bringing, bringing a vibrant Christian faith with them to a country that needs some revival and a revival that isn't about the United States, but is about a, a God's kingdom that that is beyond national borders. As I, you know, we talk about that a lot. The extremes of the the messaging that comes from more of the Christian nationalism side, and also just just you know certain media sources and social media sources that talk uses those those really scary words like invasion and marauders and things like that. I've noticed recently though too. There's there's a, a common speech among uh, even even folks in elected positions about merit-based immigration and and only from the perspective of you know we we want more qualified immigrants to come in and, and work in the, the many jobs that we need to fill 
And, but we don't want to provide them a pathway to citizenship. We just want to make sure that they, you know, can cross the border here and there as they need to. And there's very little talk at all now about even 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 from the more progressive side about immigration for compassion reasons, you know, other than perhaps some refugee resettlement. And obviously the large scale Afghan resettlement last year was was an exception. But I'm just noticing among Christian nationalists, but also evangelicals and and people in office, there's there's a, a not much talk now about compassion-based immigration and even the asylum system is being hit hard now to try to make it as, as hard as possible for anyone to be able to claim that even with legitimate reason. And so, I, you know, it's curious to me that Christians would talk more about, um, about immigration for the purpose of betterment for us as opposed to compassion for people who are fleeing really, really dangerous circumstances. So you guys have used uh, a few different words there. Could you help us understand the difference between someone seeking asylum, uh, someone who is immigrating, and someone who's a refugee? Are those the same thing? Are they different? And how are they different? So an immigrant is like the broadest term. An immigrant is someone from one country who is now residing in another country. So, um, you know, refugees would fit into that category, but they're a subset of immigrants who are defined, at least under U.S. law and international law as well, by the reason that they fled their country. And that is a refugee is an, someone who has a credible fear of persecution in their country of origin because of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. And when we talk about refugees in the United States, these are people whom the United States government has identified abroad often based on referral from the United Nations, but not always, uh, does their own verification that this person indeed meets the legal definition of a refugee. Also, of course, that they're no in, in no way a public safety or public health threat. And then a very small share of the world's refugees get selected for a settlement to the United States, meaning they come on an airplane that is coordinated by the U.S. government. And they are usually met at the airport by a refugee resettlement agency like World Relief, where I work, and ideally by a team from a local church that we've helped to, to connect to that family that's arriving. An asylum seeker, the, the best way to understand an asylum seeker is an asylum seeker is someone who claims to be a refugee when they get to the country that they want to stay in. So as opposed to being identified by the U.S. government overseas, it's someone who shows up at the border or shows up at a, you know, in the United States on a temporary visa, but doesn't want to return as their temporary visa would require because they say they have a credible fear of persecution for one of those very same reasons. And U.S. law says that if you can prove that you have a credible fear of persecution on account of one of those enumerated grounds, you're allowed to stay. One of the challenges, is, as Eric alluded to, is there's been various efforts, and this happened under the previous administration, it's happening under the current administration, to uh, mi- really keep people from accessing that due process where they can prove they have a credible fear of persecution. There's n- more and more barriers put in place to even accessing that hearing where you could prove that you're, that you qualify to stay under U S law. And part of that is more and more people have been seeking asylum. Like, and part of that is the more we close off other legal avenues for migration. So refugee resettlement declined, you know, we were resettling nearly a hundred thousand people a year, six or seven years ago, and it's gone down to 30,000 or less for the last several years even other legal immigration channels. And some of that was COVID, but some of that was intentional policies even before COVID. When people who are fleeing economic hardship, who really are not going to win an asylum claim, if that's the only reason that they're fleeing, but some of them try to seek asylum because it's like the last, the last way to to come lawfully to the United States, or at least to attempt to come lawfully to the United States uh, when there are no other options. And the irony in that is 
our labor market in the United States. I mean, this goes to what Eric just said. I make those economic arguments too, in part because I find they, uh, for better or worse, or probably worse, they persuade more people than the biblical arguments, even in the church sometimes. But the reality is we have an incredible labor crisis and our country, like the average American would benefit from some more immigrants working in agriculture, working in other sectors of our economy. And to clarify, I love that argument. It, it's it's helpful and it's necessary too. It's good for our country. But uh, on the other side, what, what drew me into this initially was the refugee crisis in Syria and, and so much of our work, Matt and I've done work on the border together. It's, it's, you know, we're seeing people fleeing really, really uh, incredibly tragic and dangerous circumstances. And, and that from the church perspective is, is more of a kingdom opportunity than, than just, you know, what benefits our economy. Not that that's not important, but it's interesting to see less talk about that right now. As a, uh, an Arizonan, as a border state, we hear from our leaders almost always, anytime that they're resistant to immigration reform, they will make the economic argument. It's got to make money sense, they'll say. And so those, those, those two things are often at interplay. One of the other things that we hear from pundits and leaders is kind of these overarching statements about immigrants and people, people coming into the country. Statements like they're taking our jobs or there's a massive caravan that's going to invade, uh, that there's all these rapists and drug dealers and murderers that are coming over. Is there, is there any truth to any of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I spend a lot of my day job responding to those sort of questions. Occasionally, there's like small anecdotal ways that that's true. Like, have, have any immigrants ever committed crimes? Of course, if you have. But there's lots of evidence that immigrants actually commit crimes at a significantly lower rate than native-born U.S. citizens on a per capita basis. And the best evidence for that actually is out of the state of Texas, which is the only state that tracks the immigration legal status of felony convictions. And, I mean, native-born U.S. citizens in all these categories, violent crime, drug crime, property crime, have the highest rates per capita, followed by lawfully present immigrants, which you know include those who came as refugees, uh, followed by those who are actually not lawfully present. So they violated an immigration law, either by overstaying a temporary visa or crossing the border. But once they've done so, they tend to avoid law enforcement, which is mostly a good thing, right? We do not want people committing crimes. It's a bad thing, of course, when they're victims of crimes and they don't call the police or they're witnesses to crimes and they don't call the police. But it's a good thing that they don't commit crimes uh, for the most part. I mean, at least at a lower rate than U.S. citizens. Now, the other, you know, the other concern that um, those economic concerns, while these people are taking jobs, I actually feel like I hear that less recently because... I mean, most of us have like been slightly annoyed to find a favorite restaurant that's closed two days a week because they don't have enough people applying for jobs. There's literally millions of more job openings in the United States right now than there are people looking for work. But even when that wasn't true, you know, a few years back, most of the work that immigrants do actually complements the work that most American citizens want to be doing. You know, I was uh, I was at a, a in Iowa some years ago in a, at a church and this guy came up to me and explained he runs a dairy and he would be happy to hire more Iowans to work on his dairy and milk cows, but they're not applying. And yet he still has his job running the dairy because there's some immigrants uh, willing to milk cows, which is hard work. And not only that, he noted, you know, most of our milk goes to this ice cream factory up the highway and there wouldn't be jobs there either if somebody was willing to milk cows. So the, the economics of this are a little bit more complicated than 
there's a hundred jobs in our country. And if there's five immigrants and take working, then there's five fewer jobs for Americans. Like economists don't think that's how it works. They think that immigrants expand the population. They expand the consumption base, which in turns expands the, the pie of the economy, if, if you will. But again, to go back to, you know, what Eric said, we would have a call to love our immigrant neighbors who are, you know, it's pretty clear from Jesus's parable in the Good Samaritan, your neighbor whom you're called to love could be a vulnerable foreigner of a different ethnicity or a different religion even if it wasn't in our economic interest. It turns out the vast majority of economists think it is. Um, but even if it wasn't, we would still, as Christians, have that call to, to, to love our neighbors. And really, you have to really contort the scriptures to conclude that, you know, someone is not your neighbor in, in need of love because they're born in a different country. Or even because they violated a law. I mean, if, if our call to minister to vulnerable people excluded those who violated the law at some point, presumably Jesus wouldn't talk about visiting people in prison. I think most of the New Testament was written by ex-convicts. <laughs> I mean, yeah, which also speaks to the reality that not every law is just. And, um, you know, there's people who are in, in prison for good reasons, and there are people who maybe shouldn't be as well. But um, Or in immigration detention, you can argue whether that's just or not. But our call to love people is not dependent on any of those factors. Eric, uh, as you pastor... Do you encounter this type of rhetoric, this kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric? And if you do, how do you pastor people towards a more Jesus-centered view? I don't encounter it near as much anymore when we really first started working with uh, immigrants and refugees six years ago. I got it a lot and heard it a lot, saw it shared a lot. It's It may be shared on Facebook more, and I just don't see it because I don't look at that anymore. But um, no, I think, I think f- uh, several folks that would have would have used that rhetoric and might still left our church as we started to engage. And then others just won't, won't say it around me anymore. But uh, I think actually we've seen a lot of growth. We've seen a lot of, of people in our church grow in their awareness of who their immigrant and refugee neighbors are. And in many cases they knew them. They just didn't realize that was who they were or they hadn't even considered the fact that, you know, they were clearly from another country, but, Oh yeah, they have they they have some sort of immigration status, or maybe they don't. And so we've come a long way in that. But you know, living in and we're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and and uh, there's a lot of strong political opinions, and most people here get their their political views on the conservative side, and they get their news from conservative media, and that's not always bad. But in terms of immigration, it often comes with very sharp messaging that's not completely accurate or uses uses words that don't describe what we're we're actually talking about and, and uses it more in like, you know, the titles or the short posts. And if you actually click on it and dig into the information, you realize they, they were using something that didn't even reflect the, the truth of the story. So we've come a long way in that. But yeah, it's um, it's hard and it's disheartening. And and I hate hearing if one of our immigrant or refugee friends has has had somebody say something hateful to them. It doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. And so we try to we try to be the counter narrative to that from a Christian perspective in their lives as much as possible. That's good. So we've talked a little bit about how immigrants are good for the country economically, infrastructure wise. Would you talk a little bit about how you see immigrants as good for the church? So specifically thinking about the church in America. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, it's a central part of the thesis of our book. Not just immigrants, but also, I mean, the church in the rest of the world that who, you know, by technology and travel, we can interact with even when they're not coming to the United States. 
But the reality is that, you know, as, as I said earlier, if you look at immigration to the United States, it includes a lot of people who are bringing with them a vibrant Christian faith. Um, it also includes some people who don't know Jesus who might encounter him for the first time in the United States if it's the church that are the people welcoming them and interacting with them and, you know, being faithful to that command to love our neighbors as ourselves, which we're called to do, whether they would ever share our faith or not. But, you know, I think sometimes even, and we've, we've done this at World Relief, we've kind of focused in on that mission on our doorstep dynamic and played into the presumption that a lot of Americans have that immigrants are largely heathens, like they're coming from, you know, they're coming from the mission field to the United States. But the reality is, like, if you're talking about people from Africa, Africa is in so many measurable ways, especially sub-Saharan Africa, a more Christian place than the United States. And not to say that there's not people who still need Jesus there. Of course there are. Or that everyone who professes to follow Jesus has an active, you know, vibrant relationship with him. But there are a lot of people in sub-Saharan Africa who have a very vibrant Christian faith. And the same is true in, in Latin America. The same is true in, in basically every other part of the world at this point. And I think sometimes as Americans, we've seen those parts of the world as people who need the gospel. And our view of global Christianity is like 100 years out of date, where the reality is there's a lot of people who need the gospel in our own communities, including some people who call themselves Christians. And there's a lot of ways that our own understanding of the gospel has been shaped by our culture that really might actually be counter to the biblical witness. That's not to say that the United States has messed everything up. There's a lot that we have to offer. It's just a mistake to think that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world don't also have a lot to offer. And they're going to be able to see our blind spots in a way that we cannot. And, this, and, and the same can be, you know, vice versa as well. But the distinction is Americans don't tend to realize that we have blind spots or it almost hasn't occurred to a lot of American Christians that we might not be the center of the church and that that we might have a lot to learn from brothers and sisters in other places, as opposed to just a lot to offer them. Eric, as a pastor, how are you seeing uh, immigrants and refugees bless the local church? Over the last few years, we've just in our own church seen lots of our immigrant refugee folks who have actually become a part of our community. They're, our, they're believers, you know, and some of them, they're, they're multi-generational, you know, their their great-grandparents were, were Christians and or, or grandparents. And so they, you know, they're discipling their kids in their homes already. And they're, as they're learning English or getting more connected to the community, they, they fit so nicely into our church ministry. This last month, we've highlighted some of several of those families by just having them, giving them time in the service. And I've told them whatever you want to do, just do it in English and whatever your other language or languages are that you speak. And so they've just these, I mean, like entire families have gotten up there and read in English and Spanish, and then sung a song together. And um, we've had languages from India, Ukraine, China. This Sunday, we're going to have one of our, our Burmese churches locally, where Matt and I have a friend who's their new pastor. They're going to bring their choir to sing with our choir and things like that. It has been such a huge blessing to us. And I, th- I honestly think that they, they have made, um, they've made this, this ministry we've done a lot easier because, you know, when, when the Burmese Christians, for example, walk into our church all carrying their Bibles, everybody feels pretty safe. Though, though we've definitely made a lot of uh, some great impact has come through ministering to Muslims or people of other faiths, too, just for our church to have those ex- that exposure. But we, we've also, though, found that we're starting to see our, our global Christian members and friends. We're asking them to step into leadership positions. We're looking to hire in our, our new staff openings, folks that come from other other cultural perspectives. 
so that there's representation and that the blind spots that we have is traditionally a, a white church until the last few years, mostly white church and all white ministry staff, as that's changing, that representation and influence is really starting to, to make an impact. So, and not everybody that's from, you know, been in the church for many years is super comfortable with that, but it, but they're getting more comfortable with it when they see the the benefit and the gifts and they, they I think they see the body of Christ with a, a wider and richer view. So it's been positive. It's not all been easy. I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat it too much, but, but lately, especially, it's been a very positive thing for us. One of the uh, things that we're hearing and, and have heard over the last decade is this language of uh, dreamers and maybe even uh, a derisive term like anchor baby. Uh, we're thinking in terms of children or younger people. Could you help us just understand a little bit about when we hear the word dreamers or the dream act or some of the rhetoric around certain leaders using executive orders to do what the legislation should do? Give us a context to understand that the dreamer word and what that all is. Sure. So the, the term dreamer, uh, it, it actually originates with an acronym as lots of congressional bills they come up with clever acronyms. So in 2001, Senator Orrin Hatch from Utah and Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois, so a Republican and a Democrat, co-sponsored a bill called the DREAM Act. And I think that was at the time development and relief for and education for alien minors. So that's where that term comes from, though very few people would probably know that today. Um, but the idea was, look, it's proven difficult, even in 2001, to pass legislation that would be some sort of a legalization process of any sort for immigrants who are in the country unlawfully. But there seems to be more bipartisan support and, and, and sympathy for someone who didn't actually make the choice to come here unlawfully because they were brought here as a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or a one-year-old. So it's basically uh, the people who would have benefited from the DREAM Act as it was introduced uh, were those who came before they were 16 years old, who had, um, you know, meet certain qualifications in terms of you can't have criminal issues. You have to be either, you know, have been in school or have graduated from high school in the United States, those sort of things. And the bill would have allowed them through a few different opportunities, the chance to pursue permanent legal status and then eventually citizenship. Well, that bill never passed, or I should say never passed both chambers of Congress and has never been signed by the president. It passed the House at one point, a different Congress had passed the Senate, but never in the same Congress and gets to the president. And it's been reintroduced over and over again. In fact, Senator Durbin and Senator Hatch is no longer living, but Senator Graham from South Carolina. So still bipartisan. It was reintroduced last week. So it's still on the table, but in absence of it actually passing into law, Back in 2012, President Obama's Department of Homeland Security created something called DACA, which another acronym, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Basically, the idea here is in absence of congressional action, the Obama administration said, you know, we can't just give these people green cards or citizenship. They were pretty clear they didn't have that authority. But what they believed they did have the authority to do was to defer action on particular cases. And they believe that because... Every administration going back to Eisenhower has deferred action on cases. It's basically a practice of prosecutorial discretion. So basically, look, the Congress hasn't given us um, enough money to remove from the country all 11 million people who are not in legal status. So we're going to have our high priorities for enforcement, people with criminal issues, people who are recent arrivals to deter them from coming. Um, but the Obama administration said we're also going to have our lowest priorities. And our very lowest priority is someone who came here as a kid who's in high school or you know, or had finished high school and has no criminal issues. So we're going to defer action on individuals who meet that category. 
um, who arrives as children, childhood arrivals. And they announced that in 2012, uh, in time, more than 800,000 people applied for that, basically allowed them not to have citizenship, not to have a green card, but to have two years of presumably renewable work authorization, and they're lawfully present in the country until such time as some president changes their mind. Uh, Then under President Trump, the president did change his mind, tried to end the program, Although the, the process they went through got challenged in court and the Supreme Court ruled actually you went through the wrong process to end this program. You can't end the program. The Supreme Court said that. But this is the process you need to go through, you know, this distinct process. Then the Trump administration was out of office and the Biden administration came in. And then there was another lawsuit actually challenging the underlying legal basis for this whole program going back to 2012. And that's where we are right now is that lawsuit is making its way through the courts. Um, the Fifth Circuit's Court of Appeal, Appeals ruled a few months ago that actually DACA was created illegally. They are holding the, they stayed the effects of that decision until such time as basically for the moment. So for, at least for those who already have DACA. So there's about 600,000 people presently who are able to work lawfully because of the DACA program. And we talk about DACA kids, but at this point they were kids when they came in before 2007. Now a bunch of them are in their 30s and have children of their own who who under the 14th Amendment are U.S. citizens. So that's that derogatory term, an anchor baby. Um, I mean, actually, it's, it's sort of a false term too because the fact that you have a U.S.-born child isn't helping out <laughs> these individuals who came in as five-year-olds themselves, at least at this point. Um, you would have to have had a lawful entry and the child born in the United States would have to be 21 years old. So like... It's a long time before they're ever going to benefit from that. And more than half of them didn't ever have that lawful entry in the first place. But all that to say, the, the moment we're in right now is you have hundreds of thousands of people worried about the Supreme Court probably eventually, probably in 2024, ruling that the DACA program was created illegally and withdrawing work authorization from those hundreds of thousands of youngish people. Again, I don't know how if you're young when you're 35 or 40 at that point. And that's going to be a crisis for those families, I mean, for those individuals, for their families, for their churches, uh, for their employers, like it's for the national economy, which is struggling to keep up with a labor shortage without removing work authorization for 600,000 people. And the easiest way to resolve that would actually be for Congress to just fix it. I mean, you could pass the DREAM Act like that. We've always said the DREAM Act would have been better than this executive action that Obama did. I understand why Obama did it. And I'm grateful because it's affected a lot of people whose lives I care about. But, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying – I'm not here to, you know, adjudicate the legal authority question. That's a little beyond my pay grade. There's a good argument for why it's legal, but there's other arguments against it. Supreme Court is very likely to agree with the arguments against it, at least the current Supreme Court, based on past precedent. And that's where I would really like for Congress to get ahead of this and pass something like the DREAM Act before we get to a Supreme Court decision. But, unfortunately, often Congress needs a crisis before they actually act. So how can the church serve in this space uh, in, in America? What, what does it look like? We, we've talked a lot about caring for our neighbors, loving our immigrant neighbors. What can we do to love our immigrant neighbors well? I'll maybe start on some, some things. And I'd love, Eric, for you to talk about how you've done this at, at your church in Tulsa. Uh, I mean, there's, actually, there's like a range of ways to respond. One, you know, I would say starting with think about your immigrant neighbors as people made in the image of God, as neighbors whom you're called to love, and in many cases, as your brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, let that be the first lens through which we look at these people. And that means starting with the lens of scripture, not just your preferred political party. So I would say even, you know, first step would be 
read the Bible. <laughs> and we, you know, the Evangelical Grace Table, which World Relief is a part of, has some Bible reading guides that are designed to help people look at, wow, the Bible has a lot to say on this topic. I've written on that and uh, lots of other people's have as well. Uh, second, I would say is look for opportunities to serve the immigrants in your community. And I mean, World Relief can help with that in lots of ways in in many communities. But it's also might be as simple as, look, you know, go meet with a Spanish-speaking pastor in your community and ask if there are needs in their community that your church could come alongside them to help meet. Um, and then lastly, and, and again, Eric can talk about what they've done in, in Tulsa, which is really beautiful. Uh, lastly, and often this is sort of an outcome of those first two, is advocacy. We actually need more Christians who are willing to call their senators and say, hey, the dreamers in my congregation are facing this cliff and we need you to resolve this. Almost very, very few Americans think we should send someone who came here in like 2003 as a three-year-old back to Guatemala or Mexico. Like they're culturally American in almost every sense. They are an integrated part of a local church, a part of their community, a part of the, the economy. But there's just no solution to that outside of Congress taking action. And Congress, you know, would be much more likely to do so if they felt that there would be electoral consequences for them if they fail to act. And thus far, there have not been. I mean, there have occasionally been electoral consequences in primary elections for people who have led on this issue. But even though the large majority of Americans say they support this, it doesn't seem to be a priority for very many Americans. And legislators are aware of that. From the church perspective, I have a presentation I, I do that that's called From Welcome to Advocacy. And and actually, after advocacy, we try to land on the, the actual goal is partnership after advocacy. But... You know, churches can be really, really good at the welcoming level. I mean, if you have people who, who uh, have that heart and and that 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 just sort of natural kindness, put them at the airport to welcome people. You know, or getting involved with community organizations to meet people, to be among the first people that an immigrant or refugee meets, so that they they experience that Christ com- compelled love and, and kindness. And then you know we. We try to help folks go to the next levels after welcoming and, and, and getting more uh, plugged in by, by learning English or helping them get established in their home or their school or getting their driver's license or things like that. And then um, advocacy becomes a level later down the, the road where you realize that folks need help, you know, and, and we have as American citizens and, and me being born here, just use myself as an example. I have a much better knowledge of how to navigate things in in the civic the civic landscape and in my community than somebody who's new to it or from another culture or country, and so I'm you know I have more access at the center. So for those who are on the margins, advocacy is using my, my access at the center to help pull them in to be at the center too, and to help them um, you know if they're facing a challenge or difficulty to step walk alongside them. If they're in danger, maybe to stand in front of them a little bit and just help, you know, provide that access or help help uh, create a path forward. And advocacy definitely comes with more conflict, but it's worth it because we we realize that we would need that advocacy if the tables were turned. And Christ sets us the example because he is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is also our advocate. So if we do advocacy in a biblical way, we can say for sure that's Christ-like and it's it's spirit-led. And but partnership then is 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 like we have with our Burmese churches and others, where we don't see them as our little brothers and sisters, but we see them as folks we can learn from and and walk alongside. That's so good. 
One of the things that many of our listeners bump up against is uh, they'll hear kind of rapid fire and really uh, outragey uh, statements about immigrants. And it's usually at the kid's birthday party. It's the 4th of July barbecue. It's Christmas morning. And we hear it from a loved one or a friend. What coaching would you give us in how to best respond to that kind of the outrageous claims, the gnarly rhetoric, the dehumanizing language? What what coaching would you give to us in that space? Help us, Matt. Yeah. I mean, I would say there's a few different ways to respond to those dynamics. And some of it's going to depend on what the relationship is as well. I mean, there are definitely times that I I don't choose to engage at every moment at, you know, my kid's sporting event. Like, but if it's someone I have a relationship with, you know, I, I, I would want to try to find a time to like, let's talk through your perspective on this. And I want to understand better where they're coming from. Be an empathetic listener. In my experience, the vast majority of people who make those sort of statements are genuinely afraid. Like they're not, it's not just a, like a, a front. They're actually afraid. Now they're they're wrong to be afraid. They're misinformed, but their fear is very real. Or sometimes it's based on something that's true but out of context, or you know that sort of thing. So I would say there's sort of three antidotes to that fear, and some will be stronger for one personality than another. So not necessarily in order, but I mean, first of all, the Bible for those who profess that they're Christians, like, and you know, often. For, you know, the people I'm interacting with right here, that sort of thing, they do profess to be Christians. I'll sort of gently ask them if they've ever thought about this as a biblical issue. And very rarely have they, you know, they will acknowledge like, well, it's not a biblical issue. And the reality is the Bible has so much to say, uh, not on what U.S. refugee policy should be or, you know, that sort of thing. I never would claim that uh, like specifically, but on how to treat immigrants, there's some pretty specific instructions from God to the people of Israel, and then some certainly applicable broader instructions about loving your neighbor, you know, about making disciples of all nations that uh, that are applicable, about practicing hospitality, which in the Greek of the New Testament means loving strangers, not having your in-laws over for a meal. So there's that dynamic. And again, we've got resources at World Relief and the Evangelical Congregation Table to help with some of those biblical conversations. Secondly, I would say anything that we can do to humanize who immigrants are. And the ideal way to do that is a long-term reciprocal friendship. (laughs) Like that is sometimes a hard place to start because people aren't willing to enter into that when they're terrified of their neighbor. But, you know, there's ways that even a church, I've seen Eric's church do this in beautiful ways, are putting people on stage to share their story. Or sometimes even that's a little risky, uh, maybe even for the person sharing their story, but there's ways to use video or other elements where you're helping people to recognize um, that immigrants are people made in the image of God. I think it's helpful to remind people how many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ that can be disarming. Although it's also helpful to remind them that people who don't believe in Jesus are still made in the image of God and are still neighbors whom we're called to love. And much of what we have been told about, you know, Muslims or others may be just really not true or maybe, you know, a, sort of the extreme version, but not true of the average person who, who professes that faith. So that's the second factor. And again, that can be tricky because the people who are really terrified are not going to call and say, Hey, I'd like to volunteer and, you know, be a friendship partner to this newly arriving refugee, but maybe the Bible gets them there. You know, I have seen that and that can be really beautiful. The third piece. And I mean, there's lots of scholars who will tell you that like just correcting people's misinformation does not actually work very often, but I do think in the right relational context, it can be helpful to come with like, well, that's interesting that you've heard that. Here's what I've heard. 
um, which seems to be contradictory. I'm wondering, you know, which of these is right? So, you know, whether it's some of those economic concerns or security concerns, I mean, like you mentioned, uh, Caleb, like, well, the people concerned about large numbers of people coming to the U.S.-Mexico border in some sort of a caravan, and it has a sort of nefarious reputation that they're coming like to me it's it's not fact it's not logical if you were trying to sneak in the united states you would not join a group of a thousand people you know like you would actually they are going to have a hard time surreptitiously entering the united states there are people who sneak in the united states they don't try to do so in a large group the people who come in a large group are seeking asylum they're looking for the authorities of the united states government to say help us in fact i have a friend he's a uh, he's down in Houston now. Uh, he came in one of those caravans from Honduras back in 2018, I believe, one of the, when it was in the news, got to Tijuana, never crossed the border unlawfully. He went to the port of entry and asked to seek asylum. They turned him away. He waited in Tijuana for nearly a year under a policy that was in place at the time and used the opportunity to help other people because he's a youth pastor. That's his job in Honduras. In fact, that's what got him into trouble. He was so good at his job of drawing people to Jesus and away from gangs that the gangs said, they were going to kill him. And there were some credible reasons to think that that could actually happen and to protect his, his wife and his kids. And he decided the best thing he could do was leave. So he joined one of these caravans, made his way and eventually got his asylum date and eventually won his asylum case. I mean, he proved to the satisfaction of an immigration judge that his fear of persecution in Honduras on account of his religion was credible. And now he's lawfully residing in Houston and doing everything he can to get his wife and his kids here years later, because it's, a very difficult, long process. But I think, you know, when I hear people, you know, that would be people talk about a caravan. I'd go back to that story. And obviously I'm sharing his story with his permission. And that's not everyone in those caravans, but frankly, almost none of them are people who are trying to sneak into the country to steal your job or, or take over the United States. Like that wouldn't be a very good strategy to do so if that was their intention. It's an excellent point. <laughs> very good. Eric, how about you? How, how might you coach those of us that are encountering some of this conspiracy theory or uh, gnarly rhetoric or dehumanizing rhetoric? I'll be honest. I, uh, early on, I would engage that more than I do now. I get tired. Um, I mean, even into my own family, not that my family's hateful or negative about it, but just, just, you know, it's tiresome to try to dig in. And, and the way I typically do is just ask questions. Well, what do you mean by that? Where did you hear that? You know, is there, is there, maybe there's another side to this that you haven't considered you know, in the church setting, of course, the biblical arguments and, and Matt has uh, actually been such a help to me in the years past just to provide me with good resources that World Relief and, and even Juggle Immigration Table have put together. But um, I definitely have had a lot of discussion since our book Inalienable came out because we talk a lot about positive sides of immigration and refugees in terms of the global church and in terms of, you know, the opportunities we have there. And so I try to ask questions if people are willing to, I mean, some people don't want a 10 minute answer. They ask you a question, but they really want you to tell them something and see if they can, you you know, you can hold their attention after 10 seconds. But um, if they're willing to listen and be reasonable, then they might, might be able to just start with some definition of terms, re-understanding some, some, some logical arguments. And, uh, and hopefully in the Christian setting, like we said, some biblical arguments. And then the biggest way that we've seen the needle move is just with personal contact. You know, there's there's just nothing like actually having that personal contact with with seeing a living, breathing person, hearing their story, seeing how they love their kids, seeing how friendly and hospitable they are so often towards us. 
And uh, that's made the biggest difference. And, and, and a lot of our folks have been amazed by the, the hospitality that, that the Afghans or Syrians or other Muslim background folks show. And uh, I've seen that be impactful in my own family. My mom and my mother-in-law have been involved, especially with the Afghan folks the last year and a half. And they have really come to see the, the, that culture in a different light. So that's, that's been positive. It's not always easy, but it is definitely tiresome. But if, if somebody's got an open heart, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, that's so good. Well, uh, Eric and Matt, thank you both so much. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your work? Um, so we work together on a, on a book along with our, our friend Daniel Yang called Inalienable. People can look that up wherever books are sold, I, I suppose. Um, and you can find out more about World Relief at worldrelief.org and the Evangelical Migration Table, which I helped coordinate at evangelicalmigrationtable.com. And I'm on Twitter as well. Just my name, Matthew Sorens, which is Sorens is S-O-E-R-E-N-S. And I, uh, and, and that book was uh, published, our book was published by InterVarsity Press. And I know you're familiar with them. Caleb and Matt has worked with them in the past. And so the IVP website has great details about our book and, and uh, we're all, we're all there. We're on social media. I mean, I'm on, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I don't do a lot on Facebook. My church email address is easy to find online. Eric Costanzo. I'm at South Tulsa Baptist Church. Anytime anybody likes to would like to talk about these issues or even come visit us, we would love to to host or get to know them better. Well, thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Kevin.